We are, we, are, we are continuing a study in Joshua. So I'm trying to grain my foot. Where, where are we going now after the barbecue? We, we're continuing a study in Joshua. And this study in Joshua is not merely because that's a great historical book. It's about some wonderful things that happened a long time ago. But Joshua is a book that's given to us also for an illustration. A lot of people make the comparison between the book of Joshua in the Old Testament and Ephesians in the New Testament. Both are about God's people entering into and living by faith in this new life that God has given them. A new inheritance that has come to them based on God's promise, God's covenant. So we, as believers in Jesus, we in the church who have believed in Jesus as Savior and thus are, are identified with Christ, we, we have this new life in Christ that is a life that's meant to be, be transforming and new and different, taking new steps into new ground. We advance into this promise that's been given us. We don't fully experience the complete victory yet, but we experience a little more of it and a little more of it, just like Israel went a little further and a little further and experienced more of God's blessing in this land that he had given them by promise. So there's some comparisons. There's some comparisons also to the opposition that they run into. There's, there's warfare, there's opponents, there's resistance in the book of Joshua. And we find that in our own lives. We did a series through Ephesians, especially focusing on spiritual warfare. And we saw that we too wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against people, well, you thought the people were the problem, but the people weren't the problem. There's, there's spiritual issues at play here. And there are spiritual opponents. There are, there are demonic powers. There are fallen angels, if you will. There, there, are, there are those who oppose God, and because they oppose God, they also would do damage to, they would hinder, they would even seek to destroy those whom God loves. And so that's the, that's the environment that we're in in the midst of this new spiritual life that God has given us. Well, how, how, how do we advance with such opposition? Well, in Joshua today, we get into a, 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 the, kind of the center of the book that's what I call the, the heart of the battle. It's the heart of Joshua. This is the conquest story, the southern conquest and the northern conquest. This is what comes out of crossing Jordan. This is what comes out of taking Jericho. These things happen next. And there's things that we can learn from these stories, we're not going off to battle with, with bows and arrows and spears and swords. No, we're, we are battling in a spiritual battle. And we, we battle by faith, by the helmet of uh, salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We step into this life, but we are in a spiritual warfare. And there's things that we can learn from these battles in Joshua that will apply into our own lives as well. One of the things we'll see here is it starts off with a story of deception. And uh, we can be deceived. We can be um, uh, we can be misled. Have you ever bought a used car? It's easy to be deceived. It's e one of the, my least favorite things is buying a used car. I don't know why that life experience particularly has to be so full of deception, but it typically is. There's all kinds of things later on. Somebody after the first service gave me another thing to watch for. This is the thing you can check. And if you look at this, that gives you an insight into the whole used car. It's too bad Israel didn't know more about that because they were deceived, but that might miss the point. 
There's a better way to not be deceived. It's a way that we'll learn as we step into Joshua chapter 9. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 9, 10, and 11. I know it's a lot to bite off. I'm going to try to, try to get the, the heart of each of these stories. We'll see, we'll see how well I do that. But in Joshua chapter 9, we'll start on page 184 if you're using the church Bible. If you're using your own Bible, of course, we'll... Start in Joshua chapter 9, whatever page that lands on. But in, in verses 1 and 2, you find that the people are very aware of what has been going on and what God has been already doing for Israel. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and all the lowland along the coast, the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and everybody else who's already there, as soon as they heard, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. That's what's going on. They, these who were at odds with one another, these who were very territorial even among themselves, now they've got a bigger problem. The true and living God has brought his people in. The true and living God has come to execute his judgment over this realm and uh, to establish a new order. And so while they were competing and fighting in and amongst themselves, now they're united together against a far greater threat to their kingdom of unrighteousness. And so in the midst of this, verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning cleverness. And they went and made ready provisions, and they took worn-out sacks for their donkeys. Now, how was that clever? We'll find out in a moment. They took wineskins that were worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, so they dressed down. They had the Portland grunge look going on. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we know that we should make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Well, who are you? And where do you come from? They said, Well, from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report about him. We've heard who God is and what he has done. They use the name Yahweh here. They use the personal name for our God. We have heard of him and what he has done, what he did in Egypt, how, what he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hands for the journey and go to meet them and say, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Look, here's our bread. It was still warm and fresh when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But look, now it's, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins that we're carrying, well, they were, they were brand new when we filled them up, and behold, they've burst. These garments and sandals are ours. They're worn out from the long journey. We had just stopped at Kohl's before we started out. So the men took some of the provisions. They checked it out. Let me see that bread. Yeah, it is dry. It is crumbly, kind of moldy here. Yeah, look at these wineskins. Look, look at those poor sandals. Dude, get some new sandals. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of, of the congregation swore to them, oh, but I missed a spot. So the men took some of their provisions and examined them, but, verse 14, they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And so they believed it. They believed the ruse and they made a covenant with this people in the land whom they would normally not have made a covenant with. 
Who knows, maybe you're near to us. In fact, this little town, well, actually it wasn't a little town, it was a large city, it was a fortress city. This city was only five miles away from Ai, just over the hill. They had probably had, some, had, had a couple of guys up on the hilltops watching what happened to Ai, seeing it all go down and said, we cannot survive. The true and living God has entered into our realm. His judgment is hanging over us. It is coming. We need to appeal for mercy. And they find a way to do it. So there's the setup. There's the situation. They, and Israel falls right into it. Israel makes a covenant with them. Should they have done that? Not on these terms. The story's kind of clear. But they did not seek the counsel of God. And yet they're bound to this covenant that they've made. In fact, later, the people of Gibeon are going to ask for help, and Israel's going to come to their aid. They're going to come and help them because now they are one with them. They share together this covenant of God. They have joined themselves into Israel, and they will now through Israel's history. They're, in fact, going to be given a privileged position, as we'll see. So it's too bad that they didn't ask the Lord's counsel. You know, I learned something about buying a used car. I, I, lo- I, I will not like a car or I'll like a car, but once I, I like the car, I don't see the bad things anymore. It's like they just fade away. I put some different glasses on, like those eclipse glasses, and the glasses filter out all the bad stuff so I can only see the shiny stuff, right? Oh, this is a car I want, and I get very optimistic about it, and I've learned that I can easily be taken in then. And I've learned to wait a day. And I've had some interesting conversations with people who were selling cars. I said, it's a wonderful car. It looks like like a really nice car. I think I'd like this car. Oh, great. They're ready to close the deal. But I can't buy it today. You can't buy it today. No, I can't buy it today. I need to go home. I'm I'm just going to pray about it. And uh, then just just see what the Lord says. And, uh, you know, after I prayed about it, I'll come back tomorrow. Oh, you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. No, you don't want to do that. Because because if you wait until tomorrow, somebody else might buy the car. Well, that would be good for you, right? Yes, yes, that would be good for me. Okay. Well, that would be okay with me then too. But I know that I can end up with a car that I don't want and and wouldn't have wanted. And uh, I've done that before. And so I've just learned to take the time to pray, not to close the deal too soon. The Israelites did not take time to ask the counsel from God. Now, how do we get counsel from God? What could they have done? They certainly could have prayed, Lord, who are these people and what should we do with them? Now, God may have said, uh, Joshua had a pretty straight line to God, just like Moses had had. And God might have said, you know, Joshua, these guys aren't from far away. These guys are your next door neighbors, in fact. But Joshua, go ahead. Even though they don't deserve to be in my covenant, you make a covenant with them. They are appealing to me for mercy in the only way they know how. And they think they don't, they, they don't deserve my mercy. But Joshua, let's give it to them anyway. I actually suspect that's what would have happened because that's what God does. How many people here have received God's mercy, have been brought into God's covenant of, covenant of grace through Jesus Christ who did not deserve it? Anybody? Anybody who is saved by faith through Jesus Christ has been brought into that covenant relationship under the new covenant, though you did not deserve it. Yeah, God works that way. God does that. And you know, God's people typically... I mean, his, Israel here, who are these people? How do we know we should make a deal with them? You know, I don't like the way they smell. They, they played that part up. They probably didn't use their deal, you know, before they came. It's all part of the ruse. And who are these people? They look a little shit. I don't know. That's exactly the kind of people 
I mean, Ruth, Ruth in Zimbabwe, right? She was a stranger. She was a foreigner. And this family of Kudas, they took her in and they welcomed her and they made her their own. and They made her belong. And even if some other people think, but she's white, she doesn't belong. Now you have trouble understanding that, right? Because you're white. But in Zimbabwe, you wouldn't be. And yet she belongs. They brought her into their, that's what Israel does with these Gibeonites. They made them belong. Even though they didn't deserve to belong. They made them to belong. How can we know God's counsel? One of the ways you cannot be deceived, and the enemy, he's a master of deception. He will sell you the wrong car every time. And I don't mean that about automobiles. I mean in all kinds of things. He'll say, look, go after this. This is going to make you happy. It's shiny. How do you know that's the thing you should pursue? Maybe it's a college or vocational path. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a move. How do you know? Well, one of the things, pray. Take the time to pray and wait and see what God's Spirit says to you. Seek counsel of godly people. You know, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It matters who you walk with and who you seek advice from. The, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. So seek counsel of people. People that you look up, you say, this person has been walking with the Lord for a while. I'm going to ask them what they think I should do. And there might be places in the word that they might show you to that you hadn't thought of yourself. That's the third point. Walk in God's word. Not just look for an answer from God's word, but one of the ways to know God's will is to walk in God's word. To step into what you do know. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about the mature are those who by reason of practice have learned to discern from God's word both good and evil. They know how to discern situations and choices and should I do that, should I go there. They, they've learned to discern that out of practice. 90% of the Christian life is simply doing what God has already clearly said in his word. And as we step into that 90%, it, ta- it makes the other 10%, which we might not have as clear of an answer from the word concerning, it makes that a whole lot easier to discern because you're already practiced at doing what God has said. And that's the biggest part of the battle. So they didn't take time to seek the Lord's counsel. They end up being deceived. On the other hand, this is a wonderful picture of God's mercy, as I said. These people did not belong, and yet God has welcomed them. Gibeon is a lot like us. That we were strangers. We were aliens. We were outside of God's covenant and promise. And yet, by the blood of Jesus, we who are far off, we who didn't belong, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And God has taken the two, and he's made us into one, and he's building us together, Ephesians 2 says, by his spirit into a holy temple to the Lord. You know what happens to the Gibeonites? Because they were deceptive, Joshua says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to keep our covenant with you, because later on, just a couple days later, as Israel's hiking along there, they find, oh, here's these Gibeonites. This is where they live. Uh, They're right next to us over here. You guys lied to us. Boy, let's go get them. And, and Joshua says, no, we cannot. And, 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 and Israel's leaders say, no, we cannot. We have made a covenant in the Lord's name, and God's promise endures. What God has promised sticks. And so they said, we're, we're, we're bound by that covenant we made with them. We brought them into the Lord's covenant with us. 
and they're, they're, they're part of us now. But you were deceptive. This is what we're going to do. We're going to make you carriers of water and cutters of wood for the house of our God. They're going to have to serve the tabernacle. They're going to have to be the ones that support and serve the center of the worship of God in Israel. What a bad deal, huh? Wow. God takes those who didn't deserve and he even gives them a lifeline, a lifetime role in his worship in the midst of Israel. Though they never belonged before. That's what he's doing with us. He's building us up together into a holy temple together for the glory of his name. David says, punishment, he says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a servant if it means serving the true and living God and bringing him glory. And that's the privilege that Gibeon is given. Gibeah is a great example of extending mercy where it's not deserved, but at the same time reminding us, take time to hear from God on the matter. Take time to pray. Take time to seek counsel of others. Take time to walk in God's word for yourself. What has God already said about this, that you would know the will of God in the matter? Now, what happens next in reaction to this? God has just unexpectedly, surprisingly extended his mercy to some people that did not deserve it. Everybody would be yay and amen. Everybody would be excited about that. The people around are going to hear about this, and what are they going to think? They're going to say, wow, maybe if we did that, maybe if we came and said, we want to submit to God as well. We want to, we want to be followers of the true and living God. We're done with these demonic idols. We want the real God. We know the Lord, he is God. They didn't do that. You wish they would have done that. You're praying for people to do that. They did not do that. In fact, when they heard, they said, we're going to get these guys. These guys have showed us up. They've showed us for the lie that we are by stepping into the light of the truth. And they're not happy about it. Verse verse 1 of chapter 10 as soon as Adon, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king what he'd done to Jericho, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon, oh, those, those traitors, had made a peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Now that ought to be good news for us right up at the front. The enemy is not confident The enemy is not strong in his position and sure about his victory. Actually, he's been assured of his defeat. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. And now he he roars about like an angry lion because he knows his time is limited. And yet he hates God. Even then he would not submit. He hates God and so he hates those God loves. Because he cannot touch God himself, he would seek to harm those whom God loves. That's what's going on in the world today. That's what's going on with with some of the trouble, some of the attack that you experience. The enemy hates those that God loves. And so they're going after, and it's even out of fear. 
They're going after Gibeon. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. It was, because it was greater than Ai, all those people were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, sent to all the other kings of the surrounding city-states. He says, come on, we've got to join together. We're in trouble. And the king of Jerusalem is especially nervous because Gibeon is his near neighbor. And, and Gibeon has given Israel a staging point right in the central Benjamin Plateau. They, from there... It's easy. From there, actually, Jerusalem could very easily be cut off from all of these other friends. So before that happens, they have got to marshal the resources. So they get all these others and let's go attack Gibeon. Let's attack these people who dared to make a covenant with Israel. And they go after them. You're going to find when you stand for others, when you go to the aid of others, when you join yourself publicly to the name of Christ, you're going to be attacked. The attack comes. And so the men of Gibeon in verse 6, they sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, don't relax your hand. Come and help us. Come and help us. So if, if, if Joshua chapter 9 rem, uh, reminded us to remember to pray and to remember God's mercy, then, then chapter 10 reminds us to ask God's help in order to be God's help. That Joshua is going to come to their aid, but he's not, he's, Joshua and the army of Israel is not enough. They are going to come, they are going to win the, win the victory. They're going to pursue, and yet it's going to be God who gives them the victory. Let's, let's read and see what happens. So they sent to Gideon, the, the, the men of Gideon sent to Joshua for help. Come up to us quickly, save us, help us, for the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. Now, if God tells somebody, don't be afraid, what does that suggest? It suggests that they're afraid. I mean, God, God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't tell you to not be afraid if, unless you're afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Stop being afraid. Now, Joshua probably has reason to fear. There's significant forces who know the terrain better than he does. They, they, they have a vested interest. They're fighting for their survival. Are his troops that committed? Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. He doesn't know. They're not battle-tested, that's for sure. I mean, Jericho was a wipeout, but what did they do? They marched around the walls, and God gave them the city. So here they go, up to the... the What's going to happen? We don't know, and yet we go. We don't know how it's going to, ha- how it's going to turn out and when, when we're called to engage, and yet we go. Yet we engage. We, we ask for God's help in order to come alongside that need, those that need God's help. So Joshua comes, and the Lord tells him, don't be afraid. Not a man of them will stand against you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them down the hill, the ascent of Beth Horon, struck them as far as Azekah and Madaka. And there's a circle now in the south as they chase them from city to city, all the cities that had gathered. They chase them from one to the other, and they run down the soldiers before they can run back into the holes that they've crawled out of. Now, Joshua seems to be very fierce here. He seems to be practicing a a strategy of annihilation. We're going to wipe out all of these people who were just living peacefully in this land. No, they weren't. And that's actually drawn out at the very end. Who started this? In Joshua chapter 10, the southern campaign, the southern conquest that ends up going all Israel's way, it's not unlike the seven-day war in Israel. Israel didn't start that one either. And yet they finish it miraculously quick. Now, now here, 
Israel doesn't start this. Israel's friend, Gibeon, is attacked. And they go to the help. And, and he marches all night. They come up the hill. They come over the rise just at sunrise when the sun is at their backs. And the enemy can't really see them. They see this big glow in the sky. And then it's raining down arrows upon them. And they're, they're routed. They're scared because they already know what the God of Israel can do. And so they're fleeing before them just as God said. But not only that, more die from the hailstorms in this huge hailstorm that God sends upon them as they're fleeing downhill trying to get away from Israel. So more are killed by these large hailstones, it says in verse 11, than from the sons of Israel killed by the sword. And at that time, in verse 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorite over to the sons of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, he prays openly before everybody, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Wait a minute. How does that happen? Well, we know the sun is not moving. Actually, it's the, it's, the, it's the earth that's turning. And so now, first of all, the Bible is not scientifically wrong because it said sun stands still and, and moon stop moving. When, wait a minute, the sun isn't moving. The Bible is not, it, this is Hebrew poetry. For instance, a well-known song from my generation, The Cat's in the Cradle and a Silver Spoon. The little boy grew to a man on the moon. What happens there? A little boy grows up to be an astronaut. Is that what the song is about? No, no. The little boy, the one who was my little baby, I used to tell him stories about the man on the moon, and now he's grown up bigger than life, and he's bigger and more important in his life, and he doesn't even have time now for dad. That's what the story's about. That's what the poem is about. It's poetry. It's imagery. So don't get caught up in, wait a minute, the Bible said the, the sun needs to stop, and everybody knows that the earth rotates and the earth moves around the sun. Come on. Neither do you have to try to understand in terms of physics how could this happen that the day was miraculously longer than it would have been otherwise. How could the sun actually, how could the moon, I mean, not, not the moon, not the sun, how could the earth slow its rotation so that the day is longer so that Joshua can finish the victory? I don't know. It seems to defy the laws of physics, but so does resurrection. Okay, so does that the uh, sky grew dark for three hours. And don't tell me it was a solar eclipse when Jesus was on the cross because an eclipse doesn't last that long. So there, there are many times when God works miraculously and we don't try to understand God's miraculous on our human scientific terms. It's no longer God's miracle. So God who made creation is able to do this, and there's, there's a host of what-if ways we could talk about, but that's not the point. The point is this. Like Joshua, don't be afraid to ask God's help in order to be God's help. Gibeon needed God's people to stand with them. God's people themselves did not have the resources to pull that off. And yet, Joshua is not shy He's not bashful about openly asking God to work. And God's works. And they win the victory. God gives them the victory just as he said that he would. So twice now, in a sense, from, from chapter 9, they didn't inquire of the Lord. Remember to pray. Chapter 10, Joshua does remember to pray. And Joshua prays big. Don't be afraid to pray. Ask God's help 
in order to be God's help. There are people around us. I think of, I think of Ruth and Kuda as they're going to care for castaway kids. I think of the Whartons in Lebanon and the, the huge obstacles that they face even getting in the country. And if, if uh, I, I, I think of the Evans family, their time in Mexico and now, now uprooted and moved again and, and, and in outside of Philadelphia and, you know, in a sense kind of isolated, a long way from us, a long way from family and friends and having to make a new home again. And yet their work there crucial to the sending out of WEC missionaries all around the world. I think of the Ragsdales, uh, uh, stuffed away, uprooted from, uh, from a life. I think 18 years they were in Africa, and they're uprooted, and now they're in Vienna. And it's not been an easy transition to move teens out of Africa into a European city. And uh, they have been greatly encouraged by people coming alongside them being with them, encouraging. I think of our friends in India and Ray of Hope that, 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 that I and Tyler, Tyler Stout are going to be visiting here in just a, just a couple of weeks in September. And I'm not going to do anything there, really. So why are we sending you? What's, what's, what's that for? It's simply to encourage those who are in the midst of God's work in a spiritually difficult place where they will face opposition. They face direct persecution because of their faith and because they are actively teaching men the word of God who are now going out into enemy territory and proclaiming God's truth, teaching the gospel. And that's going to be opposed even as Gibeon was opposed. When God's mercy is extended, the enemy is going to react against it. And we need to be those who will be there and join in and help. Those who are going forward in the gospel or those who have received God's mercy, somebody new in faith, coming to faith in Christ. Now, if they believe in Jesus, life is just going to be smooth for them, right? Some of you know better than that, don't you? That is not the way to lead somebody into faith because it will not be true. The enemy will all of a sudden rise up and begin to attack them or distract them in all kinds of ways. New temptations will come. New distractions will will roll into their lives. And we need to be ready to come alongside, even as Joshua came alongside these Gibeons, to ask for God's help in order to be God's help for those that God has made to share in his mercy. So now we get to chapter 11, just again summarizing. We've had the central campaign, Jericho and Ai. We've had the southern campaign now. All of these cities that united against Gibeon. And the end of it, by defending mercy, they gain new ground. Isn't that nice? It's not by attacking merely, but by defending mercy. That's how they gain new ground. That rings true a little bit more with Ephesians for us, doesn't it? It's not going out and attacking people. Actually, you want to step forward in the Christian life yourself. You want to extend the grace of God. You want to push into enemy territory. You want to to bug the snot out of the devil. Extend mercy. It works every time. He hates that. Grant forgiveness. Forgiving one another, even if God in Christ has forgiven you. He hates that. You know, instead of taking for yourself, no, no, work with your hands so that you've got something to give to others who are in need. He hates that. You step into the mercy of the Christian life as it's described in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And the enemy's going to rise up against that. That's how we will take next step, but we're going to need God's help because it won't go unopposed. Lastly, last thing I want to encourage us with is don't be afraid 
when God says go. That, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you the victory. Be strong and courageous. Those words echo through these chapters, and they come up again in Joshua chapter 11. Turn over to 11, and again at verse 1. Now the king in the north in Hazor, he heard, and he sent to Again, a whole bunch of the other kings and all the surrounding city-states. And he said, we got to get together. We have waited too late. We should have joined in before, and now we're in trouble. Because they own the central. They own the south. And guys, sooner or later, they're going to come our way if we don't do something about it. Egypt isn't going to help us. We're on our own here. We need to gather together. And so they gather together a huge army. It is a horde beyond number, the Scripture says. They are as the sand of the seas. Estimates from ancient historians say that they probably had 300,000 soldiers, warriors. They probably had 20,000 chariots and 10,000 horse-mounted soldiers. They've got a huge army. Israel doesn't have any horses. Israel doesn't have any chariots. Israel is camped at Gilgal, which is a flat plain, which is wonderful territory to run over with chariots. Israel's in trouble. So they gather together, and instead of waiting to see what they're going to do, instead of Joshua waiting to see what happens, when Joshua hears about it, when they first begin to rally the troops, and this king of Hazor, you say, Hazor, where is that? It's it's ruins today. I actually have some pictures for you of Hazor. Hazor is actually the largest archaeological site in Israel other than Jerusalem. It was a huge city. The city totaled about 200 acres. In ancient times for a fortress city, that is huge. They had the upper city. They had the lower city. The upper city was was smaller, roughly 10, 15% of the whole. But it was a huge archaeological site. It's only been dabbled in. Some of the, some of the higher points have been unpacked. We, can, we have found, archaeologists have found, the, the um, Canaanite temple that was burned in Joshua's day. They had that same three-foot layer of ashes as found in Jericho. This is the only other city of all the cities that were built on tells that, that um, Joshua actually destroyed by fire. Completely destroyed the place. In fact, what they did, the Canaanite temple wasn't built on further. You can see this city, down here in the bottom corner, there's those very odd kind of square rectangular things. Those are Solomon gates. The, when, when, when King Solomon later fortressed this, or he strengthened this as a northern fortress city. And uh, that was one of the things he did is he put this extensive gate protection network in there. But um, he's, you're turning off lights because you can't see the pictures. I'm sorry. You can try to... You could drop the can lights for just a moment. Maybe that'll help some. Take some of the light off. Since I put the picture up, I better show it to you. All right. Can you see a little better now? One thing I want to point out to you, these, these stones right here, it just looks like old cracked stones, right? Well, that's limestone. And limestone doesn't crack like that when, when, when something is burned down unless the fire was very, very hot. It had to be about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit in order to do that to limestone, okay? And uh, what apparently happened is the Israelites, I'll, I'll, one more picture I'll show you before I tell that story. Uh, this, is, this is actually part, it looks just like an open field. All of that open field is part of the ancient city of Hazor. It's buried now. But it was huge. Okay, so what happened with that Canaanite temple is they took all the goods and all the grain and all the wood. Well, they took all the idols and they broke the heads off, they broke the hands off, they broke the feet off. They took all the plunder from the city and they piled it into the Canaanite temple in Hazor. And they torched it. 
That's why the stone's there. That's why it was so such a huge fire, such a hot fire, because it was fuel loaded. And uh, the, the oil and the grain, and it just burned and burned and burned. And you can still see the destruction of the day. So again, archaeology is showing us this happened in 1400. This happened when Joshua is moving through the land according to God's promise. But what Joshua does is Joshua moves north. He hears their gathering. Instead of waiting for them to come to him, and if they do, it's going to be a disaster, he goes on the, on, the, on the offensive. He goes on the attack, and he meets them there where they're gathering their forces, surprises them there, and again, it's the same kind of thing, one city to the next, chasing them all over, over hill and over dale, and God gives them again the victory. And it's a complete victory. The, uh, the story ends with, um, with, with in, in, in chapter 12 with a whole listing of all of the kings in all of these regions that God has given them the victory over. God's victory is complete. It reminds me, actually, that our enemy has been defeated. Israel needed to remember along the way, they still needed to occupy land. They still needed to move forward and live in it, and so do we. But we need to know, first of all, the enemy has been defeated. We are not on our own here. We are not left to our own strength and our own abilities and try to make out as best we can in this life. Our God has won this victory for us in Christ, in his death for us, and in his resurrection. As it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, when he rose, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God has given us this victory, and it is in Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 21 says this, We need to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And those powers and dominions that are talked about in Ephesians 1, those are the same spiritual powers and dominions that he points out again in Ephesians chapter 6. That there are spiritual enemies that we face, but do not be intimidated by them. Do not be afraid of them. We are in a, it's, it's not personal about the person who's your neighbor, the person that you work with, the person who gives you a hard time. It might be that they're af- actually afraid of God's judgment, even as these people were. And the, 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 the same spiritual powers that have deceived them and blinded them cause them to be afraid of the true and the living God. What if everything you've told them about God is true and they actually are facing his judgment for their sin? That's a scary thought. They don't want that to be true. They're going to resist that. And yet God will break through in his mercy. That's what we want to do. We want to advance mercy just like the Gibeonites to whoever is around us. We don't wrestle with people. We don't fight with people. We are engaged in a spiritual battle that God has already given us victory in. That's what we need to remember. And so, day five on the march north, there in, in, J- in Joshua chapter 11, God meets Joshua. And is, this is the last day before they're going to engage the enemy. And they have this, inu- this huge army. I mean, the odds are against Joshua, clearly. And yet God says to him, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them all over to Israel. You will hamstring their horses, you will burn their chariots, there will be nothing left. 
You don't need the chariots for yourself. You don't need to gather their armaments and their war machines for yourself because, as the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the Lord our God. You will face this week trouble. You will face perhaps some opposition. There will be somebody who, if you dared to put your head up and speak for God's mercy, there will be somebody who would ridicule it. That's okay. That's all right. Out of fear, they might ridicule. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we will not then be afraid to engage when God says go forward, when God says speak up, when God says talk to that person. We will not be afraid to do it because God has already won this battle. We will not be afraid to extend mercy because we'll be surprised at who God extends his mercy to. And I want to be part of that. I want our church to be part of that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you use us that way? Father, would you, would you use us to extend your mercy? Would you use us, Father, as a church to, to reach out to people around us? Lord, use us as a family that strengthens us one another for the people that you place us around. Would you give us entrance into their lives? Father, would you by your spirit also work in them in ways that are different from others around? Even as Gibeon was different than all of those other cities. They were willing to submit themselves to your mercy. Oh, Father, there's somebody that probably each person in this room can think of. Somebody that we would desperately long to see submit to your mercy. God, we cannot do that. We can't save anybody. We can't talk anybody into faith in Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. But, Lord, your spirit is able to draw them to yourself. Lord, would you do that and would you open our eyes to see it? Would you give us the privilege, Lord, of being used in the midst of that spiritual victory? And, Lord, we'll give you the glory for it. Thank you in Jesus' name.